Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pocket People Podcast, where we chat with team and community members about their lives outside of crypto and Web3. Now, here's your host, the K Sunny. Hi, welcome. For those of you watching, chances are very good you've come across my very special guest, Chris Jenkins, aka the Pocketpus. He's a general partner at Druid Ventures, an early stage Web3 venture fund, a member of the Tampa Bay DAO and advisor to several other Web3 projects, most notably Pocket Network. Welcome, Chris, and thank you so much for being on the program. Hey, awesome. I'm glad to be here. This is, uh, it's, it's so cool to like be part of uh, the community profiles uh, for all the stuff that's happening around Pocket. I love this project. So, you know, being a face in it is cool. Yeah, talking about face, I mean, you've done, you're basically, aside from Michael O'Rourke, the face of Pocket Network. I've seen you on multiple other channels discussing the project and kind of advocating for it. Um, I'll also include those links to those interviews uh, in the description. Uh, this conversation really isn't about Pocket Network. Most people watching are probably well aware of it, champions of the project. What this project, what this podcast really is all about is getting to know Jenks. I mean, I see you everywhere. And every time I see you, I just have so many questions. I just want to jump into your head and pick apart that brain because you, <laughs> I mean, just your looks alone could tell volumes. I, can you give me a little background about your, your, your style just off the bat? I mean, you've got long hair. I've noticed you've had painted fingernails. Could you uh, go into a little bit more detail how you developed your style and where that came from? It's kind of funny because, you know, the, there was never really an intention, I guess. Um, I, I had young hair when I, or long hair when I was younger. I did, you know, I was like in the garage band. I, you know, did that whole thing. And, and uh, when I went into my corporate technology career, I, I had my hair cut very short. I was very clean cut, all the rest of that. I was generally clean shaven through most of that time. Um, and when I left the, the corporate world to start the entrepreneurship again, I was like, man, I'm growing my hair out again. I don't have to look like that anymore, you know? <laughs> and uh, for about three years or so, I'd started growing it out. Uh, after uh, we were, it was, uh, geez, you know, it was, a, it was a particularly poor Christmas during entrepreneurship. And I'd asked my firstborn kid, like, hey, what do you want for Christmas? And they said, I want you to grow your hair out again. I mean, the kids were sensitive to the financial situation at the time. And I was like, I'm going to do it. That's so sweet. Like it was like heart touch, you know, like it was such a, like a, a sensitive moment. Yeah. And this is a I, gift I can give. Right. <laughs> so about two years later, uh, everything is going to hell. My first funded startup had crashed and burned. It was the bottom of the 2008 cycle when, when all, all these things were, were happening. And I, I had, I was like going to find a full-time job again and I cut my hair for the interview. And I went in for the interview. It was a slam dunk. It was a boss I'd worked for before. I knew I had the gig and all the rest of that. Uh, instead of interviewing, he literally just took me around the building and introduced me to the team. It was one of those kind of scenarios. Two weeks later, the entire division was cut. <laughs> Heartbreaking. How'd you deal with that after? Like, what'd you? I swore I'd never cut my hair again. I'll tell you. <laughs> it was, was kind of like. Uh... Who's the, the mythical figure that's power comes from his Samson, hair. right? Samson, that's it. Yeah, you cut your hair, the division gets cut. 
And so over the years, like, you know, I, it's, you know, the hair was one thing and I grew the beard in and I always had kind of a biker style and, and it's, you know, it, it, it sort of fits. I've, I've lived in a number of subcultures where, you know, this is a common style within that. But I, I started realizing that I'd spent a lot of time sort of like holding back from, from some of the flamboyance that was naturally part of my style because I was trying to fit into my expectation of uh, business you know, professional appearance and all the rest of that shit. And I was like, you know, I, I, I don't have to do that anymore. You know, at yeah. this point in time, I was, I was well-established as an entrepreneur. I, I'd gotten my first exit and, and, you know, I, I wasn't worried about opportunities not being there over my look. And, and I was finding it was actually, it was good for business to be the sort of bad boy of technology. You know, <laughs> um, I remember we, we, I was me and, and four other partners who had a, an insurance product went in front of the board of Aflac and they were all like three piece suit guys. And I was the t-shirt and jacket <laughs> and tennis shoes, tech exec guy with long hair, you know? And I realized that there was, there was an, a sort of a different kind of equity that came from being outside of the expected norm of that style, you know? Um, Fucking the trend, you 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 right. really respect the, uh, and we have sort of a, it, yeah. We have kind of an inside joke that you know a lot of a lot of wealthy successful people like to be felony adjacent, um, in that they Explain. don't want to they don't want to catch felonies themselves, <laughs> but they like having people in the room who might be a little bit gangster because it sort of adds to <laughs> their own street cred. <laughs> And, and I found that, that that's opened some doors for me over the years. That and you give them one of those looks, you can be pretty intimidating <laughs> at that. We're going to do this deal, right? <laughs> I'm not awesome. averse to, to throwing my weight into something. <laughs> so you mentioned that you were in a garage band. What instrument did you play? Oh, I'm a bass player, I, you know. Uh, I, I'm definitely the, the Sid Vicious of the group. You know, I, I learned enough notes to be reasonably good in a very, very narrow definition of good. You know, I, I, I love I love the bass and I love like the gods of bass, Les Claypool and, and Patatucci and Bunny Brunel and Getty Lee and all these, you know, very accomplished bassists. I am yeah. nothing like any of them, but I can I can hold down a bass line and, and maybe sing along, you know. So what kind of music did you guys play? Oh, well, it's, you know, I, I guess sort of uh, uh, alternative industrial, more or less the, the you know, the, the style of my wayward youth. I was a 90s grunge kid for sure, so. Okay, so you were probably in your what? Early teens? Late teens, early 20s, Late, you know, uh, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, uh, uh, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, you know, um, I, I've been known to wear some eyeliner from time to time. <laughs> for for costume or for leisure? Uh, you know, both. <laughs> awesome. So who did you have the bandwidth? Was it just a couple of friends, any family members? Yeah, uh, three, three friends from, from my high school era, um, one of whom is, is now on the straight and narrow sober path after years of addiction issues, really? another of whom is deceased for the same reason, oh, and no. uh, another friend of ours who changed flavors every week, and so we kind of tolerated him, and he's disappeared. <laughs> you mentioned substance addiction um, with those people. Was that kind of the community? Was that... In a, uh, 
due to the environment you grew up or just the personality types that you were drawn to, a little of both? I mean, you know, it's, uh, I, I came from a place of, of, of abject poverty and, and I don't mean, you know, you don't get a car for your birthday. I mean, like the power's off for three months during the winter, you know? Um, and, and when you're in that bottom quintile of earnings, substance abuse is just part and parcel of the trade. You know, it's, it's an easy industry to get into to make money. Um, you can take minimum wages and, and, you know, double to triple them in a weekend with careful entrepreneurship uh, of street level wholesale pharmaceutical distribution. <laughs> uh, and it numbs the pain. And, yeah. you know, some of us made it through that stage and, and some of us didn't, you know, my, my guitarist, Chris, who was a, a talented writer, an incredible guitarist, self-taught and a hell of a lyricist. He wrote the lyrics to the vast majority of our songs. He decided that crack was his drug of choice. And, and at some point in time, that just became too much and he's not with us anymore. Oh, that's sad to hear. I'm sorry. Were you in touch? Like how long ago did he pass away? Oh, it's been almost 15 years at this point. I was trying to track him. He had gone to St. Louis and, and disappeared for a little while. And I actually ended up, I, I hadn't heard from him in a couple of years. And so I literally went on the R St. Louis subreddit and said, hey, I know this is a long shot. I'm trying to find my buddy. And I gave as much info as I could about him. And later that day, somebody came back. They had a local news article th that had him in it and, you know. Oh. talked about the end and all that so oh, crushing were you able to like say goodbye or go to any funeral or was it just kind of, one it, of was, it was literally like a year and a half later you know oh, okay. he, he had been gone for a while and that he kind of almost expected in a way due to what you knew he was not surprising sad but you know it's it's when you're when you're in that culture especially once you you get past the teen years where you everyone feels immortal and, and your friends start dying it, there comes a point in time where there's a certain cadence to it hmm. and and it becomes less of a surprise and and more of an eventuality you know huh so which area was this in where did you grow up Oh, I, just, I mean, that's a story all by itself. I grew up all over the place. I was a military brat, so we, oh. we lived in eight countries in 13 years. Oh, wow. Um, ended up in Florida in 89, and I've basically been here ever since. I, I started, I traveled a few times and left a few times, and then just always ended up coming back. I love the Tampa Bay area deeply. Oh, that's great. Which branch of military? And Air which Force. Parent? Air Force. Father. Father. And you mentioned that you grew up in abject poverty, but being a military brat and having the military as an employer, uh, was your family out of the military when you guys fell on hard times? Or yeah, I mean, when you when you're when you're enlisted in the military, I mean, it's 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 roughly equivalent to a blue collar trade from a, a compensation perspective, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were you know, lower middle class in actual financial level. But while you're in the military, you get housing allowances and, and all these other things that that generally bolster that pretty reasonably, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but when my dad left the military, the reality of that economic situation hit home. And we were in North Carolina um, because my dad had been offered a job there. Uh, and that job evaporated when we got there after traveling there from Europe. Oh. And uh, so, you know, he was basically caught flat-footed with 
no preparation, no ability to, to pivot well around that aside from getting the first job that he could find more or less. And the vast majority of his, of his training in the military was in um, the assembly of, of munitions and ordnance. Yeah, that really translates <laughs> Which apparently to doesn't civilian. translate to the civilian <laughs> world well. So it, it, you know, it, it was a challenging time. And when we hit, uh, when we hit Florida and landed here, they're just, you know, he hadn't had a chance to make much in the way of progress. He eventually, you know, like he, he became a law enforcement officer and, and, and built himself up in state government jobs over time and, and, you know, bounced back from that. But that was all pretty much long past. I had become an adult at that point. Wow. So what influence did that have on your life having really being a military child and, and not having roots. Like I've been exposed to a number of military brats as they called. Um, and one thing that they always talk about is how hard it is to really develop deep, meaningful relationships because you're constantly moving. You build a best friend and then next thing they're gone, you're gone. Um, how did that really shape your, you growing up? I mean, I can, I can speak to exactly that. It's, you know, th there is sort of a protective isolation that comes with the territory. You become a chameleon very quickly. I mean, I, I lived in three different countries where they didn't speak my language. And so, you know, you're functionally isolated and your goal is to as quickly as possible adapt to your environment it, to the greatest degree that you possibly can, you know. Yeah. Um, and even in England where, you know, we at least speak the same language, you're still that yank. You know, and I remember Yank go home getting spray painted on the garage, you know, oh, like, I mean, it's, you know, you are, you are never far from being reminded that you're an outsider. And so your whole goal always is to blend in as well as you can. Now, as a child, that's pretty traumatic. But as an adult, that ability to be a chameleon, to be comfortable and at home in any circumstances, it doesn't matter if I'm in the, the poshest environment or, or the, the, you know, the poorest hood, I'm never uncomfortable. I can always, you know, I can sit on a dirty couch as well as I can on the, you know, a, a Louis the 14th divan. You know? Gilded toilet. Uh, I don't think I've ever actually had a gilded <laughs> toilet opportunity. So you've never been to the Middle East. No, actually, as a matter of fact, of, of all the places I've traveled, the Middle East and Far East have, have been not in the mix. And so I'm very much looking forward to heading out to uh, Korea later this year to oh, meet great. up with some of our pocket compatriots. Oh, that's awesome. I've never been to Korea. I spent some time in Japan. Highly, oh, some of my favorite places. So of the countries that you lived in, which were your favorites or the most memorable you know, I mean, it's, I spent the longest amount of my uh, childhood time in the UK. And so I have a lot of love for it. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's the butt of a lot of jokes when it comes to things like culinary accomplishments and, and, you know, <laughs> and the hygiene. weather, which is complete shit. And, yes. you know, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot to not like about the UK. Uh, but the thing is, you know, I, in general, as soon as you get past that sort of classic British standoffishness, there is a, a deep-rooted dry wit that I appreciate that runs through British culture. And there, there really is truly like a, a real friendliness. You know, when you're, when you're a mate, you're a mate, you know, and right. like there's, there's a, a real a feel for that. 
Um, and it's expressed in different ways depending on where you are in the UK, but it's always there, like a real deep and underlying thing. I think the, the Brits themselves are probably the, the most staid of the mix. The Irishmen are, are, are just a wild, fun time to, to, to hang out with and to party with. Um, and, and I have a deep and abiding love for the Scottish brogue. I could just hang out with Scots just to listen to them all. Oh, my day. God. Yeah. Jack, hey, Jack, I hope you see this because I'm thinking of you, buddy. How old were you when you were living in the UK? I got there when I was five and I left when I was 10. Oh, so that's a pretty good chunk of when you're kind of finding yourself. You're, you're just transitioning into your queens. And, and it's, it kind of speaks to like sort of the multiculturalism that I grew up with that makes me so comfortable anywhere. I was in Spain from when I was three to when I was five. And so I was just becoming an accomplished speaker as a human. <laughs> and I was learning both English and Spanish. I had a next door neighbor kid who was like five and he didn't speak a word of English, but we played every day. You oh, know? that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the things, pelota, you know, like those, those, are, like those are just things that come from my childhood and being in that, that space and that time and being exposed to all these different things. And, and I think it's, it's helped with that, that sense of being a chameleon because A, uh, I already have the training to listen, to look for the things, to watch for the cultural norms, to see how other people are eating and how they're engaging with each other and mirror that. Um, but it also, you know, set up some some deep um, linguistic programming from early on to be able to learn and appreciate these things better, you know, to, to hear language being spoken in different ways. And a lot of Spanish people now are kind enough to tell me how good my Spanish is, which it is not, it is terrible, <laughs> but I can speak it well from like an accent and, and pronunciation perspective. And yeah, that counts for a lot, you know? Yeah. That's great. So how many languages have you retained from your, your world travels? Oh, geez. I mean, Spanish is probably the best of all of them. I have a handful of functional sentences in French and the same in German. Um, I, I, I can I can swear profoundly in Italian. Um, <laughs> what else do you need? I mean, really, swear words. And I know and most of the lines. hand movements, so yeah, you know, that's, I think we, we get most of the way there. I am I'm uh, I'm really trying to get back to actual professional level of fluency with Spanish. Uh, I I deal so much with Spanish speaking communities that I want to be really strong at it. Um, and then I'm also very interested in learning some Asian languages, especially like uh, Mandarin, because it's one of the most commonly spoken languages in the world. You need to spend more time with Ming. He would be a good tutor for you. Shout out yeah, to I'm Ming. about it. <laughs> Ming, awesome. teach me Mandarin, brother. <laughs> awesome. So you spent from till about 10 to in the UK. Where'd you go after that? North Carolina. Oh. And let me tell you what a culture shock that was. <laughs> I have grown from five to ten into a proper little English boy. <laughs> I'm sure they just adopted you and took you in like you were one of their own right off the bat, huh? So I land in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I, I go to my first day of school, Thomasboro Elementary, shout out, um, fifth grade, and it's like three quarters of the way through the year. So you're showing up like mostly through the last year of elementary school. All the cliques are well established. Everybody has all their friends. 
you're just this random newcomer who pops up late in the game from another country. Oh. And and and, and there are so too. many. Things. I mean, this is uh, in the deep south, yeah. which leads to my point that there were cultural things at play that I had no clue about <laughs> as a 10-year-old fresh out of England as a military kid. As anyone who's been in the military knows, the military is a very diverse environment, right? Um, Uncle Sam doesn't discriminate. It thinks you're all a piece of shit. So, you know, uh, um, these concepts of like uh, racial injustice and inequality and, and, and discrimination and prejudice, I was wildly unfamiliar with. And so I show up in this, this school, and of course, you know, kids are the byproducts of their parents and the culture that they grow up in. And the first thing that stands out to me is there are distinct placements of seating in the classroom itself where the black kids are all sitting together over here and the Mexican kids are all sitting together over here and then the white kids are all sort of up front and all together. And it was like, what is going on? Oh man! Uh, and, and so I was just trying to navigate that to begin with, just looking around, trying to figure out where I fit in. You know, yeah, all these clearly established groups. It's and then the language, right? I mean, we all speak English here, except I'm speaking the Queen's English, and they're speaking North <laughs> Carolina English, which is slightly different. And so it goes a little slightly. something like this. Class, I want to introduce you to our newest student, Chris. He just came here all the way from England, and he has the cutest little accent. Say hello, Chris. <laughs> now, my name has never had two syllables before. I learned <laughs> to adapt to that. But, uh, you know, so I'm just looking up like, like Pip from South Park, you know, like, hello, I'm Chris, please don't kill me. <laughs> you know? ball, please. <laughs> and they're all like, <laughs> let's kill him. Uh, <laughs> or at least that's how it felt to me in the moment. <laughs> but that was my introduction to, you know, life in the deep South. It was, it was wild culture shock for a 10 year old who, who knew England as his primary childhood home. So how long did it take you to adapt and kind of figure out the, the unwritten rules and, and groups? Or did you kind of, because you were such a chameleon, were you able to navigate and, and find your place amongst multiple different? You know, I mean, it's, it's there's a difference. Kazoo hype. <laughs> I know, right? There's a difference between blending in and thriving. And so your goal as an outsider in that kind of environment is not to join clicks and be popular. Your goal is simply to not be a target. Almost sounds like I just read an article about prison life. I mean, that seems very analogous, or if that's the word I'm looking for. But I won't go into a lot of detail about that, but I'll say that's fairly accurate. Really? Okay. Um, what can you say about about that? I'll say that the state of Florida enforces its laws vigorously. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you've been uh, a, a, a guest, guest of the of state. The state. <laughs> As we prefer to call it. I didn't go to Florida State, but I did spend some time <laughs> at a state-owned institution. You didn't go to Penn State. I spent time at the state pen, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's the same kind of thing. You can either get involved in politics, which is generally bad for your health, or you can not, you know, and, and there really is only those two decisions. It's very binary. Um, I, I am not 
afraid to dive into politics, but within the appropriate context and where I have some chance of, of you know, doing some good as contributing to that system. Um, those systems, no. My entire goal was just to keep my head down, do my day-to-day, -day and wait for the, the change of environment. Wow. How, how, do you mind me asking a little bit more? About I was 18. You were 18. Okay. How long were you incarcerated for? There were multiple times I never spent more than six months at a time. Okay. So long enough to really get a sense of... I had a bondsman on speed dial all through like from 18 to 20. <laughs> oh, oh, man. What was it like? 14 arrests during that time. What was it like getting arrested the very first time? Like what went through your head? Was it like, fuck you, man. I didn't do anything wrong. Or was it like, I fucked up? You know, it's funny because it, it's a lot of people, they've commented in the communities and all the rest of that. They talk about my ability to manage stress. And when you grow up in an environment that is chaotic and constantly changing and is prone to bouts of violence, depending on what's going on, the way that you process stress is differently. It is different, you know? The first time I ever uh, went up to jump out of an airplane, people know that I have a fear of heights. I'm, I'm acrophobic. Um, and, and like, if you put me on top of a tall building, you know, I get the dizzy vertigo and all the rest of that, you know, yeah. Um, but the first time I went up to, to jump out of an airplane, uh, everyone was sort of watching me the whole time. Like, is Chris gonna freak out? And instead, my response to that is to become very, very, very calm. And it's dissociation, emotional dissociation especially, is a trauma response that comes from exposure to lots of trauma and violence and all those kinds of things. And so when I'm in an environment where I probably should be more freaked out, I tend to just become very, very zen. Like all of that goes away. And it's not like I have some superpower or it's something that I taught myself to do. It's it's just like trauma training. Natural, yeah. Your body's conditioning itself for fight or flight. Like a very yep. survival mechanism. I need, that... My head needs to be clear. I have to evaluate the situation. I have to decide what I'm going to do. I need to be able to do that at high speeds because sometimes I may only have one second to decide what I'm about to do, you know? And so I just become very, very calm and clear in the moment. Wow. Have you had to use, or has that come out later in life, like in business or is it something that you now attribute as a skill in, in some regards? I mean, it, it really is. Although, you know, I probably more of a trait than a skill, I guess. Skill implies like practice and, and, and consciously attempting to, to grow that. It's just something that, you know, was sort of beaten into me. And, you know, I mean, it's when you when you look at a, a Marine's ability to disassemble and assemble a rifle, right? Sure, it's a skill in that you were trained to do it, but you've done it so many times it becomes muscle memory. It's not something that you have to consciously think about anymore, you know? Right. Um, and and it's, it's kind of the same thing. I've been in crisis situations in business so many times, starting back at the, the 2007 crash 
and going through, you know, multiple rounds of trying to build my own business, having my first funded startup, watching it crash and burn into the ground, getting acquired by a larger organization, going through cash crunches in that larger organization of just bigger scale. You know, it's the, the difference between a $10 crisis and a $1,000 crisis and a million dollar crisis is remarkably small. The scenarios are all the same. It's just the number of zeros that are involved, you know? And so it becomes like that same practice over and over, this, this sort of repetition and routine. Um, a lot of people have asked, you know, why I've been able to remain so calm during the, the you know, market downturn now. And I mean, you know, I, I have been deeply financially impacted by the market downturn, but this is exactly the kind of scenario that I was bred for, so to speak. You know, I've had so much practice with tough business climates and conditions that, you know, I know that stressing out about it doesn't get us to a solution. I need to stay calm and clear and focused. Ah, so after your rebellious teen 20s. And then my wildly conformist mid 20s to mid 30s. <laughs> yeah, what was that transition like? Like, how did you finally basically get scared straight or what what took you off of the path of going down the same route as your guitar buddy when i uh when i got arrested for the the last big time which led to the longest you know single bout of incarceration and my time as a a, a custodian or a guard uh, <laughs> you were cleaning the place huh? state guardianship whatever the case may whatever you want to call that yeah i guess okay. yeah um <laughs> I had had developed a pretty a pretty significant daily cocaine habit at the time, um, and and not like out of addiction. I thought in my mind, it just of course not. It happened to be around every day, and <laughs> it, we always had access to it. And so, why wouldn't you? You know, a little bump to stay sharp and clear, and another little bump to keep you going on the days that are long. And you know, before you know it, it's you know you're you're up to an eight ball or so a day, and 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 you don't realize how much of a habit that's become until you're suddenly removed from that environment and it's no longer an option. Um, and so, I spent you know. 60 days drying out in in a jail cell um and and that came with some clarity like wow i was really strung out there and didn't even realize it you know like what kind of withdrawal symptoms did you have how did you manage oh, I mean, they don't you know, give you anything as far no, as i understand no, 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 the healthcare no. system if you're incarcerated you're pretty much the only time you get help is when you die i don't want to downplay addiction but you know cocaine addiction is not heroin addiction and it doesn't come with the same, you know, deep physiological responses as opiates withdrawal. Right. It's a lot more like quitting cigarettes. It okay. just gets up in your head and it sits there all day long, <laughs> right? When I quit smoking cigarettes multiple times, that was the problem. Like I would get to this point where the depression was so great. I didn't want to live if I couldn't have a cigarette because it just sits there in your brain bitching. You know, like, man, don't you want a cigarette? Wouldn't a cigarette be nice? Like all fucking day. And, and that's that's how coming off a of, of Coke addiction is. It's like it just sits up there like complaining. Everything would be nicer if you had a bump right now. Yeah, it would. But I don't. So fuck off. <laughs> so did you have to remove yourself from all of those connections once you came out, like all the temptations, basically reestablish yourself? I mean, kind of, you know. The thing about drugs like Coke is that they're, they're so prevalent everywhere all the time. And, and kids, cover your ears. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, used responsibly by some people. 
you know, and, and, yeah. and I, you know, I'm not ever a person who judges other people's behavior. I just have to police my own. You know, if somebody decides that that's how they want to party and hang out on a Friday night and they do that once every few months and, and it's not a problem in their life. Well, I mean, you know, it's kind of like people smoking a cigarette at the bar. They don't buy packs during the week, you know, but Hey, they're out with some friends and they have a few cigarettes, you know, I'm not going to make some judgment about comparative risks. So please mothers against drugs or whatever, <laughs> don't fucking email me. But, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, the reality is there are people, who are responsible with their recreational drug use and the longer you're around and the more people you meet the more likely you are to run across people who you know they out of good faith you know are like hey i'm gonna you know hey i got, got a little half gram tonight you want a bump you know and you just kind of you really have to get to the point where you're making that call for yourself you know you your health is not the responsibility of somebody else you've got to make those calls for yourself and so i don't try to isolate myself from anything uh, I just, you know, I stay focused on what's good for me and I make decisions that are good for myself. Sage advice translates to uh, a lot of the conversations on some of the pocket channels. D-Y-O-R, baby. <laughs> it's not just an acronym. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you knew what you're getting into. Nobody forced your hand. If you spread yourself too thin, that's on you, buddy. Sorry. So getting out, and getting your life straight. What was your first job or what was your first, I guess, your, your first legitimate employment after all that? Well, I mean, it's, I, I was a line cook through much of that time. And I love, yeah. I love being a cook. I've, I've been in sous chef role. I've done like a little coumage. I've done prep. I've done, I've worked a lot of places in the kitchen. I love cooking. And if it paid worth a shit, I would probably still be a cook. I, I love it. Did There's a any... dance in a kitchen like that yeah. that I really enjoy being a part of. Everybody else in the kitchen is also a broken, fucked up person, so you're in good company. You <laughs> oh know, God, like... the stories, yeah, of those kitchens in New York and all those big cities. It's ridiculous. It is such an interesting subculture. Just how abusive and i mean look at what happened to anthony bourdain i have everything. a large portrait a watercolor portrait of bourdain in the kitchen hanging on the wall my we we call it saint anthony right looking down <laughs> over uh, um everything that we do in there i i think you know it's it broke my heart when anthony bourdain killed himself oh. because he had always been my role model for somebody who came from exactly the same kind of place and accomplished everything that I wanted to, the travel, the, the proficiency, the, the expertise, the fame, the money, all of the things like his life was my dream life. Wow. But it didn't stop the pain ever. Yeah. Those tortured artistic souls. I mean, musicians, chefs, um, artists, just themselves, uh, musicians. It's, it's tragic. There's such him and Chester Bennington, both were, were like, you know, exactly there were people that I held in high regard who told you who they were and what they were going through. They never shied away from talking about their struggles. And so they were always sort of a role model of, hey, you can get past this too. And then they didn't. And so it hurt twice as much. Oh, crushing. Yeah, that was, that was a tough one. I, I really liked Anthony Bourdain. Just his, his um, the TV show that he shot. It, I'm a big food I love to eat. I'm a mediocre cook, but just exposing people and getting a bigger audience to really look at culinary uh, 
you know, the culinary treasures from, from other countries. It's, you know, I, at food is, and this is one of the things that, that Anthony Bourdain did really well. Food is a language and food is an emotion. Food is how you show love. And especially if you're a poor kid, food is a reward and a promise of something better, right? If when your mom comes home with a, you know, a, a $2 box of Little Debbie brownies, when you've been eating beans and rice all week, right? This is, this is wealth. This is a reward. And fundamentally, we, you know, we, we tend to associate that. Poor kids in particular tend to associate good food um, with, with pleasure, with reward, with luxury, with riches, with, with doing well, which is one of the reasons why there are so many weight problems in, in the, the poorer communities because it's one of the few treats that you can have. A, a McDonald's Happy Meal is so meaningful, you know? You've had mac and cheese five days that week and then you get a cheeseburger, you know? Like, it, it feels so powerful. And, and guys like Anthony Bourdain and, and other, you know, accomplished artisan chefs, they, they understand the language of love that, that lies underneath food. And, and, you know, that's something that I've always shared greatly. And, and obviously I, I have the weight to show it. <laughs> that's interesting you say that because food, sugar especially, is known to trigger the same receptors in your brain as drugs. It's very so, similar to opiates, yes. It's a socially acceptable way to get that same neurological response as... Yep the the lesser legal means and one of the things that that really like gave me this sense of i made it right was when i was able to start like ordering uh, um family style at restaurants when groups of my friends were all coming to hang out with me and i would just grab three or four appetizers for the table and grab some some plates to share you know it was like you know, I, I'm not just going to write everyone here checks because that's that's the road to ruin. But you're all my friends and family and people that I love and care about. And so I want to share this with you. Uh, and it's it comes from that same thing, like my ability to share from abundance. And it's something that's primal. It goes back to, you know, our caveman days when, you know, one person brought that elk down after running for three days until it fell down from exhaustion and he clubbed it to death and dragged <laughs> it back to a cave, you know. And you've got like, you know, four different families who are now sharing in this meat that they were able to. It's something so deeply primal and, and like... Yeah. It's second only to sex, I think, in, in our <laughs> primal drives, you know? Because totally. let's be real, a man would starve for some good sex, but food comes next. Or he'll kill for a good steak. I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that community that, that I'm, I'm excited you get to go to Korea. I've never been to Korea, but Asian cultures tend to have more of that communal feeding. Like food is, an event. It, it's deeply rooted in their culture. Like I spent time in Japan, um, little time in China. And like when you go to out in Japan, you sit down at an izakaya or a restaurant and you don't order your own individual dish. You order samplers and everybody, you know, it's, it's a community effort. Like, what do you want? What do you want? Oh, that sounds good. Oh, we should all try that. And I loved it. And in China, they've got the big rotating table and they order just massive family style and everyone's sharing. And it's such a great experience because it really adds to the community feel of it. 
that's one of the things that I love about Korean cuisine, especially. I'm a huge fan of like Korean barbecue. Um, and, and, and I have like 16 recipes that have gochujang in them. And, and like, I love uh, the, the whole thing. I'm just so into it. But when you look at, you know, like kimchi is not a food, it's a class of foods, right? And okay. so if you sit down at a Korean barbecue table, you're going to have like five different kinds of kimchi and various levels of spice and various different ingredient combinations. And you might have one that's like super heavy chunk cabbage with a light little bit of this. And then you might have one that's a whole different blend of like sprouts and other stuff. And they all just have that same uh, um, process of being fermented with like a vinegar and spices or whatever else. Like that's what makes kimchi, not the actual core ingredients. Right. Right. Um, and, and, you know, so like having that table spread family style where you've just got like all these different little things to pick at and like three or four little kinds of pickles and maybe some little light fried little niblets. You know? <laughs> I love that whole thing. And every time uh, I travel, um, you know, my wife and I, we like to, you know, hit new restaurants and all the rest of that. But I always prefer to be with friends because I don't want to have to pick an entree at a restaurant, right? I'm in this brand new place. The restaurant has a 4.8 rating with all of its reviews. <laughs> I don't want to come here and eat one thing. And I also don't want to come here like six times and have to like, you know, what I want to do is come with three or four friends, order five or six entrees and three or four apps and everyone just kind of pieces it out onto your plates and we all share, you know? That's awesome. So of you being a food person, what's the strangest food you've ever had or animal or? Oh man. As, according to American culture. I mean, it depends on where you're at because obviously if you're eating it there, it's not so, so weird. It's a tough question, I think, just because it's so culturally driven. Like uh, in England, uh, I had horse burgers, um, which I think in the U.S. is is considered very odd. You know, we eat cows, we ride horses. Um, you know, I, I've eaten a, a significant number of reptiles. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Cajun and Creole cuisine. I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I make a killer roux and uh, my jambalaya and gumbo are both to die for. And one of my very good friends is a Cajun and he, he brings the, uh, the etouffee and, and uh, uh, some of the awesome. other uh, good stuff, like makes his own tasso and when we've ground phyllo and like, it's, it just, oh. it, it's, yeah. I can see um, your kitchen pumping the Zydeco music and getting a big pot. Exactly of <laughs> that. So turtle, uh, uh, alligator, I, I eat a ton of alligator. I love all of the weird shellfish like conch and abalone. Um, you know, it's, but depending on where you are, that's all perfectly normal. You know, if you're in the Bahamas and you're not eating conch and abalone, what's wrong with you? you know? right. And, and if you're in, in Florida and you're not eating gator, really, I mean, you're, you're missing <laughs> out on, on some really premium meat, uh, or New Orleans, same way, you know, like a good, uh, alligator sauce piquant is, is, mm, I, I will, I will go hard for that. Have you ever had like possum or raccoon or any of the I have not ever eaten what might be termed as roadkill meats. <laughs> uh, I know people have eaten armadillo uh, as well. That's another one. Um, I have not. Um, apparently, they are a big spreader of um, leprosy, um, which I yeah. did not know. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, uh, none of those things. But, you know, I've eaten a couple different kinds of snake, turtle, frog legs. I've, I've eaten, Jesus Christ, I've eaten my weight in frog legs. <laughs> Um, and, and when I worked in a Caribbean restaurant, uh, when I was much younger, 
Uh, alligator oh. was on the menu there. And so we made gator bites for the customers, but I would take gator tail fillets and make sandwiches out of them. Uh, and like really elevated, like huh. nicely butterflied with a, uh, uh, an Italian breadcrumb crust. And like, I mean, I was, you know, we hooked them up, but. Oh, sweet. I got to have you up and, and cook up here being in the Midwest. It's a big hunting culture. I myself, uh, I, mean, I, I am not hunter. averse to hunting at all. In fact, the every bit of real free time that I have, I spend fishing. Awesome. So uh, you have your own boat? You Do you charter? Do you... I have uh, salt water in my backyard uh, leading up to my dock. Awesome. Oh, yeah, Minnesota, fishing is in our DNA. It is. Have you ever been walleye fishing? I have not, but I have had many, many invites to MSP to do some uh, ice fishing and uh, walleye fishing as well. Oh, ice drinking. Basically, you sit in a, a phone booth on a lake. Oh, no, 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 no. They've told me we're not allowed to do that. Oh, they're like, that's they're how the tourists do ice fishing. <laughs> what we do is this. Oh, God. Yeah, the egos of some people. Yeah. <laughs> the purists. The they purists. very much want me to come up. Yeah. Kyle Flicker, if you see this, I will come ice fishing with you, but we're, we're staying in the hut. Yeah, you, you got to do it right. You got to have your six pack, your hole, your TV, your heater, your snow cat. Yeah. Don't drop your phone in the hole. <laughs> I've heard all the horror stories. Oh, yeah. Trucks, trucks going in, snowmobiles. Yeah, it, there's some I'm, hardcore I'm very people. much bred for warm water or warm weather. So, you know, we'll see how I do in an MSP winter. But I was in Chicago in June and freezing. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Everyone was probably walking around in cutoffs and jorts. And... I was out for brunch. It was 53 degrees. I was oh, going to die funny. of cold. <laughs> oh, my neighbors would be out suntanning. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Now, you know, mid-90s here in the summer, everybody's dying. I'm like, yeah. Really? All right. Well... Uh, Chris, I, I've really enjoyed our chat. I think this kind of um, comes up on, on the time we have for today, but uh, lots of fun. I, I really enjoy what you're doing for the community, what you're doing for the project. Personally, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. I would love to have you on again. We can pick up, talk more food, more travel. Maybe and maybe have... a roundtable with multiple people on at some point. I it, I would like to do an in-person, like my vision for this is to build it out. I think those face-to-face -face interactions really come through in, in genuine conversations. And, and Well, I keep trying to get Ming to come down and visit, so uh, maybe I can host that and uh, we can do a round table in my living room and well, bring some of the notables down. Yeah, if you come up here, we could knock both of us out in the, in the same chat. He lives not too far from me. I'd rather fly y'all down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. Well, Chris, I, again, thank you very much. Um, for those of you watching, you can see Chris in any number of um, other channels talking about the project Pocket Network. Uh, he's on multiple, multiple chats, uh, Discord, uh, Telegram, Twitter. Um, I'll have all of his information linked below so you can follow him. And it, I highly recommend it. The man really knows what he's talking about, lives a very interesting life. And uh, one thing I've gathered from following you is you suffer no fools.
<laughs> I don't. You know, it's 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 funny, and and I guess that's probably a good point to end on. A lot of people like to to tell me that you know I, I speak as though everything I say is the truth, uh, and I should remember that it's it's my opinion. But the thing is, I I know it's my opinion. I'm authoritative in my opinions. If I didn't believe strongly in what I was saying, I wouldn't say it, right? But if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm open to being corrected, you know. But if you're coming at me and, and you don't have facts and figures to back up your position, believe me when I say I'll take it apart and break it down to size. And he has. I witnessed multiple times. Yeah, I do not recommend. If you're going after Jenks, you better be wearing full plate metal armor. You must be backed by a million person army because he will shred you. Fair warning. I'm generally a nice guy, I swear. As people, I think, will gather from, from our little chat here. But thanks again. I know you've got a, awesome. a busy life to get back to. 48 messages waiting. <laughs> well, thanks again. We'll chat again soon. You got it. Podcast is an independent production, not officially affiliated with Pocket Network. All comments and opinions of the host and guests are strictly their own.